Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Romare Bearden. My guest is Glenda Elizabeth Gilmore, the author of Romare Bearden in the Homeland of His Imagination, which was just published by the University of North Carolina Press. The book examines how Bearden's address of his native South, he was born and was initially raised in the Charlotte, North Carolina area before his family was effectively forced to leave the South, was informed by the vagaries of memory and even imagination. Gilmore is a professor emerita at Yale University. Her previous books include Gender and Jim Crow, Women and the Politics of White Supremacy in North Carolina, 1896 to 1920, and Defying Dixie, The Radical Roots of Civil Rights, 1919 to 1950. Gilmore's new Bearden book is an absolute delight. I recommend it highly. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $26 to $40. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Milton Avery, the survey that originated at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, has arrived at the Wadsworth Athenaeum. But first, Glenda Elizabeth Gilmore, after the break. On view at the Getty Villa through August 8th, the dazzling new exhibition Persia, Ancient Iran and the Classical World, explores the artistic and cultural connections between ancient Iran, which was historically known as Persia, Greece, and Rome. Works on view include royal sculpture, spectacular luxury objects, religious images, and historical documents assembled from major museums in the United States, Europe, and the Middle East. The exhibition also features an immersive film exploring the site and palaces of Persepolis, the ceremonial capital of Persia. Plan your visit, view related events, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition explores the profound impact of the Great Migration on the social and cultural life of the United States from historical and personal perspectives. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition features newly commissioned works by 12 acclaimed Black artists working across a variety of media. Through the artists' distinct and dynamic installations, a movement in every direction reveals a new spectrum of contexts that shaped the Great Migration and explores the ways in which it continues to reverberate today in both intimate and communal experiences. The exhibition is on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston will host the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery Tour of portraits of President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama by artists Kahinda Wiley and Amy Sherald. The exhibition contemplates how portraiture has given visual form to ideas of power, identity, status, and legacy throughout history. Experience the power and beauty of these celebrated works now on view. For tickets and info, visit mfah.org tickets. And we're back. Glenda Elizabeth Gilmore, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Your new book, Romare Bearden in the Homeland of His Imagination, starts with an interesting fork in the road. You address that you're going to kind of write between what happened in Bearden's life going back to when he was young and what he believed happened within his life, because your subject is inevitably responding to what he knew or thought he knew rather than to latter-day scholarly factuality. So when considering Romare Bearden, why is all that important? First of all, it's really interesting in and of itself, because it's the way that 
all of our memories work. We think we know things about our past that we don't. We think things to be true, but it's exceptionally interesting for Bearden because people have generally thought of his work as autobiographical, when in fact he has sometimes incorrect memory, factually incorrect memories, and a very scant memory of ever living in the South, which a great deal of his work is about. On the other hand, can I just I'm, jump in to note that he yes. moves out of the South when he's what, five or six years old? Yes, they move. I think he's five. He could have still been four. The date that they left is not clear, but I think it was probably in the fall of 1915. He would have been five. And they become new people. They go to Pittsburgh and Harlem and become new people. The other reason, though, that it's really important to me is that I was interested in his imagination in what he thought, how he commingled memory and his artistic practice and his imagination of what his background had been like or would have been like. And so I think I say at some point in the book that it doesn't matter if his memory is correct or not. What matters is that it reveals constituent parts of what goes into his work and what we appreciate. I will say it's not uh, the best practice for us as viewers to take him literally. He didn't pick cotton. He He's not all the things he represents, but he's interested in all the things he represents, which is equally valid. I don't want to race ahead, but Is there an example of an artwork that you think might be a really good illustration of that? that? My favorite is Liza in High Cotton, which is actually in the book. And we mentioned the name of the Southern Art Museum here. But when that was exhibited in said museum, they depicted it as... Bearden playing with his friend Liza in a cotton field at the family cabin when he was growing up. Bearden couldn't quite place to begin with who Liza was. He called her a little girl who kind of played with me. My research, it's a little iffy. I think she was probably an older girl who lived near him who was his babysitter. They lived in downtown Charlotte. And the fact that we're near a cotton field existed Matt Bearden's time or Liza's time. I think that his great-grandmother or grandmother with whom he lived would have said something like, he said, where's Liza? And they said, would have said something like, well, Liza can't come. She's in high cotton. Liza's in high cotton, which means you're doing well. It doesn't mean you're in the cotton field picking the cotton. So that's the kind of risk that you take if you look at this and think that he knew those things. Another example was at one point, the mural in the Charlotte Public Library spoke that it was the view from his family's cabin. And his family lived in a two-story Victorian home in downtown Charlotte. They owned a whole semi-block of property, three houses and a grocery store. And they didn't have a view from a cabin because they didn't have a cabin. The things we're talking about here are kind of about how Bearden's art is both a valuable source for for somebody writing a biography-ish and also how it is a 
source that requires interrogation, shall we say. And I think in the book, you even note that that his art is a more important source for you than really anything he said, in part because Bearden, when he engaged with people in correspondence or an interview or in his own writing during his life, was pretty happy to go along with the mythologies that had been built up around his biography. Why is that? Why was, why was he just, like, why was that fine with him? Well, this is sort of a roundabout way to get to what you're talking about, but I think it's really important for the book. Bearden is a person who did not live a life of celebrity. His mother, for most of his life, was more famous than he was. He held a day job, was a social welfare worker, and he lived a long time. He became successful when he was in his 40s and 50s. So therefore, he has a lot of ground to make up for that is undocumented when people come to interview him. A lot of ground that he hasn't really thought about for public presentation. So he had a kind of, he could be really spontaneous in interviews, but most of that was about the work or about a more current kind of situation if he was asked. But he had a kind of set piece about his background. So you can read scores of interviews and not really get scores of different memories of his past. At the same time, he that's true for most of us. If you read the interviews that people give about their lives in the archives, they have a pretty pat story because life is long and interviews are short. And if you want to get the meaning of your life through, you have to have your points down. I was interested, you know, there's documentation. There's a lot of stories about him in newspapers. And uh, there, there are some letters. There's not an extensive private collection of Bearden's letters, but there are letters in other people's collections. But I was interested in actually using the art as an archive for myself. I was fed up with words after writing books and books, and I was not fed up, but interrogating how historians like myself could go to archives extensively for years, write a book, and think they had nailed down the story, think they had captured the story particularly with the explosion in the past decade of the internet, you're always finding something new. There's always a different variation on whatever there was in the archive. And also particularly doing African-American history, which I've always done, the archives, quote unquote, that were collecting until maybe now, certainly until the 1970s and 80s, were not collecting African-American memory, literary production, correspondence, et cetera, in the same way that they were collecting that of white people and elite white people. So new social history methods and an explosion of available information on African-American lives through a variety of sources opened up for me things that weren't open to Bearden that he could never have checked. It would have taken him months to find his family on a census microform reel or something like that. But I could just go to Ancestry and do that. So a lot more was available to me. At the same time, I had Mary Schmidt Campbell's excellent biography, which enabled me to have a, a sort of spine, a sort of linear trajectory of his life 
And I had worked on his three generations of his family in earlier books that I wrote. They had come to my attention. So I was interested. I actually knew how to find his mother, grandmother, great-grandmother in a way that he didn't know because I had written histories of the 1890s, of the 1920s. And he had only, he was only born in 1911. So in some ways, my grasp was a little longer than his. That's a good transition to kind of us building the base for Bearden that you do in the book. Who were Henry Kennedy and Rosa Catherine Cosbury Kennedy? And how did they migrate from enslavement to prosperity in, in Charlotte, which we started talking about? Henry and Rosa Catherine Kennedy were Bearden's great-grandparents. They're extremely important to his life because they were very powerful people, but also because he lived with them. He and his parents lived with him in that family complex that I described until he was five. Henry Kennedy, whom I believe I have found in the census, grew up in Chester, South Carolina. He was an enslaved person, as was Rosa. But Bearden wasn't sure that was the case. In interviews, he says, well, I don't know. I I think Rosa was a Cherokee Indian. Everybody from North Carolina, white and black, says they're part Cherokee Indian because many are. And I think he had a difficult time imagining his fabulously dignified great-grandfather ever being enslaved. I'll start with Henry. Henry was in the... 1850 census, he appears as a mulatto slave who was enslaved by Major John Kennedy, who was basically never really a major, but took the honorific and was essentially the founder of Chester. He came from Antrim, Northern Ireland. He was a staunch Presbyterian as that band of immigration into Piedmont, North Carolina was founded upon. And I am pretty sure that he was Henry Kennedy's, either his father, although he would have been old for that, or his grandfather and his son, George Kennedy, was Henry Kennedy's father. Why? Not simply because Henry Kennedy was mixed race, but because he was literate and it was against the law to teach slaves to learn how to read in South Carolina, yet someone taught him to read. He could have been a spontaneous reader, but probably he was so literate that he was taught to read. The other reason that I think he was related to the Kennedys is because after Fort Sumter, they sent him inland to Augusta, Georgia, either as a paid servant remaining enslaved to the white Kennedy family or sold him outright as a person to Woodrow Wilson's father, who was also a Presbyterian minister. So the two of them, the Kennedys and Woodrow Wilson's father, Joseph Ruggles Wilson, would have known each other. So there he is in Augusta, where he meets Rosa Catherine Gasfrey, whose family is from Charleston and in a similar situation. They were enslaved to... Francis Gaspre, a Portuguese carpenter in Charleston, who was almost certainly their father. Rosa Catherine Gaspre's mother and the family were moved to Augusta, probably also because of the Fort Sumter 
being exposed. And so during the Civil War, Henry Kennedy and Rosa Gosper Kennedy, Rosa Gosper Mary, and their daughter, Caddy, their only child, is Rumery Bearden's mother. They are incredibly entrepreneurial people. Henry Kennedy becomes a federal mail clerk on the railway, which was a job that had the same pay rate. There was no black and white discriminatory wage for that. And he was on the route between Augusta and Charlotte, which went through Chester. Ultimately, he took the best chance and moved his family to Charlotte. He had a federal pension by the 1890s. They owned a grocery store. He drove a wagon, a hack, a taxi around Charlotte and was a complete leader in the Black community. Rosa was active in the Women's Christian Temperance Union, ran the grocery store, and I encountered her in my first book, Gender and Jim Crow, as a major civic figure in the Black community, as was their daughter, Caddy Kennedy, who married Richard Bearden, who was a self-supporting harness maker who lived in Charlotte. In some ways, the key event of Bearden's life is his family's effectively forced migration out of the South. They will move to Harlem. And it's something both you and Bearden's other biographer, you've you've already mentioned Mary Schmidt Campbell, both of you identify it as pivotal in the family narrative and also pivotal to Bearden's future and the work he will make. You know, I guess in short, why did the Beardens migrate? You know, an interviewer once asked Bearden himself, why did your family move north? And he said, well, I guess they were looking for opportunity as other people were in the Great Migration. So for me, that's a conundrum because they have opportunity. When Bessie Bearden, who lived in Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Atlantic City, marries Howard Bearden, she moves to Charlotte with him, and they are immediately established among the Black elite in Charlotte. The family makes enough and has enough business ventures to support everyone. So they didn't have to leave. They had opportunity. And the reason they left, I believe, was because of Bessie and Howard took Romery downtown they dress, always dressed him. And there were people alive in Charlotte when I lived there who remembered Bearden in this outfit. They dressed him as they dressed young boys of the upper class in the South in a dress, white socks, Mary Jane shoes. And then when you got to be a certain age, four or five, you were breached. You, you started wearing breeches, pants. Generally short pants, and then you went to long pants. So they took Bearden downtown shopping. Bessie went into a store. Howard is standing outside with Romare, whom I still call Romery, as the family did. So, but Romare and a bunch of white men surround him, thinking that this black man has kidnapped a young white girl, a white toddler. Bearden has blonde curls when he's young. He's very, always very light-skinned. And so Bessie comes roaring out, and she was formidable in any situation at any time, dispels the notion that that is not her son. This is not crazy, because Black families in Charlotte, I found several others 
who took in white children and were paid by white families to bring them up in their own homes, but also because there was a national vice scandal. It was called the white slavery panic. People believed that the only reason that white women went into prostitution was because they were kidnapped by gangsters or black people and forced into prostitution. So history really converges that day. And very shortly thereafter, they leave Charlotte. Bearden recalls leaving Charlotte. He knew something big was up, but he wasn't sure what. And he recalls that Liza went to the drain. And I believe I've only been able to put him back in Charlotte, which claims him. And even kind of still glosses over the fact that he didn't grow up there. I think he only came back once when he was about seven until the Kennedys were dead. He came through in 1940, but he was born in 1911. So it was a traumatic event. Bessie Bearden having, she was born in North Carolina, but moved to Atlantic City and Pennsylvania. And she was simply not going to be Jim Crowed. I'm sure it was her decision. So they both went to Pittsburgh to stay with her family for a while so they could go. And they left Bearden there and went and established a home in Harlem and brought him there. I want to come back to Pittsburgh in a moment. But before we kind of get to the Charlotte-Pittsburgh split, as you look at Bearden's work, which, of course, was made long after he left North Carolina, are there impacts or references to that migration that you see in the work? Absolutely. And that's why I was so surprised that he wasn't terribly reflective when asked that question in an interview. Oh, I guess they were just going up, you know, for opportunity. It was a time of migration. There's a wonderful collage called Tomorrow I Will Be Far Away. Most people have depicted this as a Black Southerner looking North and dreaming of the North. But I really think that it could also be the opposite. It could be a Southerner who has already moved North, looking back at his Southern memories. There's such longing. The haziness of the woman working in her garden to the right is so suggestive of Southern gardens rather than Pittsburgh or, or Harlem. And that painting is all about memory. I don't believe To me, that it's about anticipation. It seems to be about memory. My favorite depiction of contemplating the journey is called Watching the Good Trains Go By. It's got an assembly of characters standing in front of the railroad tracks. That's the main line, the main Southern railway line. When I stood in the position where Bearden's great-grandfather's house was, that would be what you see when you look from the front porch. You see the big train, you see the hills in the background. He has a cast of characters in this collage, all of whom could jump on the train, who are anticipating or not going or staying. And what a wrenching decision that must have been. The man in the plaid, And that white straw hat looks pretty resolute that he will someday get on the plane. The older woman with a dotted bag probably will stay where she is. The folk musician, I think, 
is a traveling sort to start with. Wherever he goes, it may matter, it may not matter. But everyone, young and old there, is in such close proximity to the opportunity to go and make a completely new life. And that's what Bearden is telling us. This was so contingent. They could have gone, they could have stayed. They didn't know which they were going to do. Trains figure in Bearden's work extensively, in part because he had that view of the main line, but there was also an amazing elevated track that came across the street he lived on, Graham Street, that went to the main line. And so the trains literally went over his house on the left, standing or practically over his house, standing on the front porch. He watched trains fly out of the sky. Yeah, there are a lot of trains in Bearden works in the book. And indeed, some of the fun is thinking through the relationships between Bearden and the railroad, both both his family's work on, on railroads, you mentioned between Charlotte and Augusta earlier. And, um, and then, of course, also trains are primary in great migration iconography. And watching his, the good trains go by is a great example of that. His father during World War I is not drafted, Howard Bearden, and he the entire family moves to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, Canada, where his father works on the rails. Before that, his father had worked on the Atlantic coastline, going from New York to Florida. So there's two generations of his family who have worked on the rails. But also, I'm interested in what I think Bearden had a memory that was almost a physical memory, not a cognitive memory, not a sort of intellectual memory of trains. I think he remembered in his body being on trains. He spent his childhood on trains. And so trains, and and he also, even as he slept, these trains in watching the good trains, they would have rattled everybody in the house as they were sleeping. And so I, I feel like he experiences trains in a sensory and sensual way that most of us particularly those of us who never rode on trains very much, don't remember. Uh, Pittsburgh came up a moment ago. And within the book, there's there are a number of works that Bearden makes that reference or are, you know, air quotes cited in Pittsburgh. And of course, many that reference the South, the area around Charlotte. And you write that the artworks Bearden makes that refer to Charlotte and his life there tend to be matriarchal. And that the works he makes of and apparently referencing Pittsburgh tend to be, quote, masculine, but not patriarchal. I thought that was interesting. Break that down a little bit for us. I think that's a really good example of how Bearden's experience influences his art, but is not specifically, explicitly autobiographical. The family home in Charlotte had generations of women and is a safe place. It's a place that he grew up really basking in the love of. He was the, his grandmother was an only child. He's, you know, the, the grand, the first grandchild of this huge family basking in their love, feeling completely safe. And also he's 
only five when he leaves. When the family gets back from Moose Jaw, they aren't sure where to settle. Bessie and Howard leave Bearden with her mother and stepfather who run a boarding house for steel mill workers. And in these boarding houses, fortunately, there's a lot of sociological studies on Black steelworkers in Pittsburgh at the time. So you can get a really good idea of what it was like. Often they had 10 people sleeping in an attic. Every bedroom was full, these old row houses. And August Wilson is inspired by Bearden's art in, in his written work, in his playwriting on Pittsburgh. But I think he was a lonely little boy there by himself. His grandfather and grandmother must have been incredibly busy running a boarding house. And he is separated from his parents. They've moved three times, maybe four-ish, during his short life. And I think he's literally kind of, I won't say afraid of, but certainly senses that the male boarders in the boarding houses have power that he could run awry of them, that he must be a good boy. He must behave. You feel that he's a little bit in awe of them. He admires them, but he's a little bit afraid of them as well. And part of that, again, this is where the artistic practice meets the personal history. Part of that is in the period that he's doing the Pittsburgh work, he's really exploring cubism. And you know, cubism is a little bit scary too. So it's a sort of perfect match for the Pittsburgh experience, this sort of raw cubism. A good example of that Pittsburgh referencing work that does some things you're describing might be Mill Hand's Lunch Bucket Pittsburgh Memories from 1978. Interesting. We're talking about a lot of work in the 70s. He's clearly looking back. I love this. This is one of my favorite works and it is what inspired August Wilson so much. The kind of perspective, the kind of cubist and rectangular perspective that he has here is is present in a lot of his collages. He's mixing material. He's looking out windows at scenes as he does later in the South. But there are three things in this that I find amazing. One that's is the heartbroken rocking chair in the bottom right. It looks like a heart that has been broken. The other is the powerful figure in this scene is the mill worker who is reaching for his lunch bucket. Bucket. He's got, you know, beard and loved enormous hands. He's got the most enormous of hands. The woman looks exhausted, as you surely would be if you were running a boarding house for mill workers. And then in the lower left hand at the bottom, I had looked at this for a very long time before I saw that there's a little boy. There's a small person. I can't be sure it's a boy, but it's a small person cuddled up under the chair where the man in the black suit sits. So I think to me, Bearden may himself not have been able to depict this, but you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to figure out that these are emotions and memories that are still present somewhere that he's able to access. 
Before we kind of advance into World War II, at least in Bearden's life and after, we of course, we're bouncing around in the work because Bearden did. You mentioned gardens in the South a little bit earlier ago. I think when we were talking about tomorrow, I will be far away. And I wanted to raise another one of these late 70s works that you write about, a collaged work of Maudel Sleet. Who was Sleet? How does he portray her? And how might that be a really good work for understanding the tension between memory and experience that runs through the book? I spent years looking for Maudel Sleet. I'm now convinced myself that I found her, but I'm not absolutely sure that the neighbor who he depicts as Maudel Sleet is the the person I found. He can't really remember Maudel Sleet either. There was a woman who grew things out of the ground. He says that she performed magic and that sometimes her vegetables, they would go and get her vegetables. He says, I've done her about two or three times, and each time the facial characteristics are different. I wouldn't recognize her as the same woman, one for the other, but it's all right for my memory because I'm recalling this thing as in call and response, not as in recall. He portrays Model Sleep as in her garden many times. He portrays her as an incredibly powerful figure. And one of the reasons that I'm so attracted to her is how he gets that right. Women kept gardens, black and white women in urban settings. They kept chickens up until the 1950s in the urban South. She is wearing what women wore in their gardens, men's shoes, (laughs) brogans. You know, he loves her because her hands are incredibly powerful. And the South was so hot that people went out to garden in the what they called the cool of the evening, which is why there's this in, in for example, sunset and moonrise with Model Sleep. That he is absolutely right. That is the moment that all the women had put away the dishes and they went out to the gardens to get them ready to pick vegetables for the next day. In this collage, Model Sleep's wearing a midi blouse, which was a huge fashion fad from about 1910 to 1917. So I actually believe that he may have actually seen Model Sleet and couldn't record where. I think that these are the neighbors who lived down the street from the Bearden complex. Maud Slade, who had grown up on a farm, had married into this urban family, and the whole family later decamps from Washington, D.C., leaving Maud Sleep behind and taking with him her husband, who was a jazz pianist and uh, played in Washington for years. Maud Slade eventually joins them. Bearden uses Maud Sleep as representative of working Black women in the South, who included most Black women in the South, because everyone was busy. Everyone was making a way out of no way, trying to make the ground produce food, which is not that easy next to a major railroad in a major city. But as he paints, as he does collages and works with her, 
over the years, the vegetables get bigger, the flowers get bigger, and the woman gets smaller. And one of his biographers, Myron Schwartzman, says, well, in the last, Mariel Slate isn't even in the last painting. There's just, you know, fruits and vegetables. And Bearden says, that was Mariel Slate. So what he's remembering, what he's trying to, or what he's telling me, is he's remembering abundance. He's remembering being a magician to make things sprout up out of the ground. He's remembering a way of life that is so remote from modern America, urban America, that it seems almost fantastical. And he gets that magic across in all of the works on Mardell Sleep. We will come back to Model Sleet at the very end of our conversation. We've been talking about Bearden's memories of his past and how they surface or may have been manufactured in his work. I want to leave that for a bit to put some kind of, I don't know, semi-necessary biography in place. World War II, Samuel Coots. You write that Samuel Coots, who was a dealer, provided Bearden with a toxic combination of opportunity and plagiarism, and that Coots changed Bearden's work. And in some ways, the Bearden we know is, at least artistically, of course, is Coots and after. What did Coots do to and with Bearden, and how did he change his work? Well, let me start at the beginning. Bearden had always been an artist, drew and painted from the time that his grandmother in Pittsburgh got him an art kit when he was so lonely in the boarding house. He began drawing cartoons. He took four semesters, two years at Boston University in fine arts and studio art. So he's a trained artist. And then when he goes back to New York in 1935, he studies with George Grossi at the Art Students League, the renowned German photomontage person. And Bearden thinks he's going to be a cartoonist, but Grotti shows him that the kind of drawing he can do, the kind of line drawing, that kind of cubist, rectangular composition can be art as well. And he spends a, from about 1935 to 1941 or two working in social realism. He's still cartooning, but his cartoons for the crisis in AACP magazine and the Baltimore Afro-American become much more artistic. And he's producing social realist paintings. It's the moment for social realism. It's the latter part of the 30s. He's politically conscious. He's absolutely convinced that he bears a burden of representation, that he is a Black artist, getting acknowledgement. They're not many. And when people look at his work, they see capital Black art. They see what Black artists do. So he's feeling that burden. The other thing is he's he enlists in the Army, and it's World War II. How is he going to maintain an artistic career? Bearden, there's not a moment in his life when he cannot draw or paint or construct art. So he turns to watercolor fast, transportable, working with it while he is stationed in South Carolina at Camp Croft and then later at North Carolina at Camp Davis. And it's 
his abstract art, Watercolors Proceed, his meeting, with his encounter with Samuel Coots. But that's probably the reason that Coots was interested in him. But Coots is determined to set the agenda of abstract art for New York. And he does, Coots does this in two ways. One, he says we should, during World War II, when access to Europe is closed, he says we should allow ourselves in America to explore, to do less landscapes, more European things, more Cubism, more Fauvism. And so Bearden's already there. He's already doing that in part out of necessity because he's in the army. He's a sergeant. But second, it appeals to Bearden at the time because he's weary of this burden of representation. He spent two years studying the old masters. He's a trained artist in a way that gives him broad range. And he's able, without the burden of representation, to take up any kind of work, to produce work that's going to show what he calls the universal human condition. And he believes that semi-abstraction will do that. Kutz's journey is different. Kutz represents Bearden, but Bearden is never really on, it could say represented people in two ways. One, he paid for their living expenses. The other, he represented their art. Bearden didn't, he didn't pay for Bearden's living expenses. Bearden was not enthralled to him. But ultimately, Kutz moves from semi-abstraction to intra-subjective art, which means you don't need any representation. Your art can be completely abstract and reflect what you feel inside. For Bearden, that's very hard because what he feels inside is a combination of his experience as a Black man, his family's prominence, his migratory life, his study of classical art. And what would that be for in introsubjective? He's not a particularly introsubjective kind of guy. <laughs> He's got plenty going on without probing the depths of, of his psyche or his id. So he leaves Coots before Coots leaves him. He starts chafing under this non-representational art in 1947. But by 1949, Rothko and Motherwell, that's who Coots is pushing and representing. And Bearden's kind of at sea. He's a single man in his late 30s, early 40s. He's painted and worked in several different ways and doesn't really know what to do next. So at the end of his abstract period, he goes to France and then comes back and is relatively, feels as if he doesn't know what to paint, feels as if he doesn't know how to paint because his method has always been integral to what he wants to express. Those two things worked together for him. So he's lost and doesn't paint, doesn't draw for two or three years from probably 52 to 54, 55. After a period of not painting between 52 and 54 or 55, how does Bearden arrive at collage? And I guess, is it fair to think of there as being a, you know, quote, first collage as it were? He meets Nanette Rohan, who is active in the arts in New York. And his doctor has put him on an 
serious antidepressant. Before, as doctor started him on what were probably opioids for depression and then moved to Milltown, the Hollywood drug. And she says, I don't think there's anything wrong with you except these drugs. And so he goes off and things begin to clear for him. I believe probably she was right. I think he had a physical, I think he had like indigestion and they said he was having a, you know, a panic attack and drugged him up pretty heavily as they tended to do in the mid fifties. So as that clears, he tries to regain his artistic practice in a really interesting way. He makes photostats of old master's work to look at their composition. And when you do that, it's a little bit like collage because you see the shapes and the lines and, and not the colors and, and not the complexity, but the structure. And of course, remember, George Grossi thinks he claims and certainly contributed a great deal to, he claims that he invented montage painting. He, in World War I, you know, that he's the first person to clip things out and draw over them, etc. So he's got two artistic imperatives, copying the old masters and his drawing and experience with Grotzi, that lead him to collage. He wants to start slowly, and certainly his first collages are sort of slow. I, They are not complex. He's not painting over them as he does later, but he's he's inspired by Matisse and also Matisse's own trajectory in art from Fauvism to, to later. He's he's influenced to leave space to use color as structure, and that's most easily done through collage or easily done through collage. Let me jump in for a quick second. The work you identify in the book as possibly being a first collage is Harlequin, maybe probably in the book, Harlequin from 1956. And as you mentioned, Matisse, it's worth noting that he's taking a Picasso subject and doing it in a Matisse way. (laughs) That's Um, right. with, 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 With color and, and the rest. Probably his first collage is his 1956, or at least the first one that we have now, is uh, his 1956 Harlequin. Clearly, he's well-versed in Picasso's work. Coutts has turned to representing Picasso in America. And his Harlequin is amazingly lively. Bearden is keen to get movement into his collages. And it's so apparent in this first one. He's also not a sad, morose Harlequin. To me, this is a celebration of of Bearden finding his art again, going off the uh, tranquilizers, using color as space. He says, I use and space as color, leaving white to, to denote structure. The Harlequin is literally sort of dancing, it looks like to me. He does others, and then he begins working on blowing them up into what he calls projections. He did that in order to to teach himself how to do collage, yet the actual projection, the actual blow up, the blowing up of them reveals such interesting details that Cordier and Ekstrom exhibit those and his career takes off again. We've talked a lot about the work 
Bearden made in the 1970s, because I think those, in part because I think those works are really central to your book's thesis. But also in the 1970s, Bearden begins to spend time in the Caribbean and South America. And I thought it was really interesting that you note that this is about when he begins to look backward in his work. So when he's spending time in the Caribbean and South America is when he's looking at Charlotte of the 1910s and 20s, Pittsburgh of the 20s, Harlem of the 30s. Is this a man late in life looking back? Is this coincidence? Is it cause and effect? How might we think of him looking back at the time he's literally physically going abroad to the Caribbean and South America? The first time I went to Europe, I said, oh, I want to learn so much about Europe. And the person I said that to said, I think you'll learn so much about yourself. And I think that's certainly what happened to Bearden in France. And it's certainly what happened to Bearden in St. Martin. But also his vision has changed. St. Martin, it was Nanette Bearden's parents' home. They were immigrants from there. The color strikes him as so both exotic and familiar. And I think that he pulls in that color when he's thinking back on his memories. When you're a child, of course, things look incredibly colorful to you. You're struck by color. You're struck by specificity. You could look at a worm for an hour, you know, that sort of thing. St. Martin sort of refreshes that for Bearden. I think it gives him access to a period when things were brighter when literally prior, when he was a child, and enables him to literally pull that through into his work. Again, that's one of those, I mean, sure, I'm projecting there. I'm moved from North Carolina to New Haven, which (laughs) never was a day sunny as it had been in Charlotte again. But I also think that's one of the really interesting things about Bearden is that because he never stops working and he works wherever he is, his art absorbs where he is. He says, when I'm in New York, I'm still in St. Martin when he comes back and forth. And also in St. Martin, he can't do collage. He does watercolors because you can't take all the equipment and all the clippings, but then he comes back and makes the collages alongside the watercolors that he had made in St. Martin. Bearden's final known collage is from 1987. It's called Moonlight Prelude, features a train and its searchlight moving through the middle of the picture at an angle. It features some nature, it features some people, features a red ground, a blue sky, and white clouds. Red, white, and blue always mean something in American painting or in American art. Why is what Bearden shows in what is his final known collage made 100 days before his death significant? I think it's significant for for two reasons. One is in the artistic representation, well, three reasons. In the artistic representation, all of the elements of the past 20 years of work are there. The train, the trestle the odalesque, the folk musician sitting in a chair playing, birds flying. That's logical, but it's also been simplified into a kind of statement. 
these colors are as vivid as I can make them. These people are as happy as I can make them. He kept, he kept working even though he had bone cancer and he had an assistant. He, in, in the micro history of this work, his assistant got the train trestle wrong three times and Bearden made him scrape it down and, and put it back just so, just perfect, the way that he remembered it from 402 Graham Street, Charlotte, North Carolina. Yet you see St. Martin in that painting. You see the colors, you see the lush tropical setting. And I think the title, I'm not, I don't know that he titled it. He often didn't title a lot of his work. But Moonlight Prelude is a great valedictory for someone who knows they're going to die. He had to be carried up the steps to his studio by the time this was finished. He knows he's dying. And this is what he left us. I want to wrap up where you wrap up the book. Earlier on, we talked about Maudel Sleet and the garden she kept two blocks from Bearden's home in Charlotte and his memories of it and how over a period, his memories of her and her garden manifested themselves in his work. What became today of Maudel Sleet's garden and what does that kind of reveal to us both about the passage of time and the power of memory? The thriving Black neighborhood, which was integrated black and white in the 1890s and early 1900s, is completely paved over for the most part. Bearden's Kennedy family complex is part of a parking lot. But Mario Sleet's garden would have been covered up by the Bank of America Stadium, where the Carolina Panthers play. It would have been completely obliterated by artificial, fake, green, colorful Southern life that is so far removed from what Bearden saw, so far removed from the history of Charlotte that it seems impossible. It seems almost exotic. But I end the book by saying, Bearden mourned the loss of his Charlotte. He went back for an exhibition staged by the Mint Museum in 1970, and he reflected this way. He's once said of Charlotte, all of this is gone. The people are gone. The people who thought that way are gone. So I end the book by saying, no, I still think this way. I don't, uh, I still believe that you can see the past, even through the paved over present. I'm convinced that one Sunday afternoon while watching a Panthers game, which I do watch, I'll see one of Sleet's squash vines sprout on the 50-yard line, and it will grow magically, monstrously, until it covers the field. To me, that entire reimagining, revisioning, recapturing the past is what I wanted to do in this book, but more largely what I wanted to do as a historian. A very American story. Glenda Elizabeth Gilmore, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. 
This spring, the Pulitzer presents Assembly Required, an exhibition featuring nine artists whose work invites your active participation. Engage with work by Francis Elise, Rashid Arin, Saya Armajani, Tanya Bruguera and Instar, Ligia Clark, Elio Oidesica, Yoko Ono, Ligia Pape, and Franz Erhard Walter. Created between the 1950s and the present, the artworks respond to distinct social and political moments, from unrest in the United States during the Vietnam War to Peru's military dictatorship. The artists offer unique perspectives on social change, addressing the need for optimism and hope in the face of global tensions. The exhibition poses questions about how art allows us to imagine new ways of being in the world. Assembly Required opens March 4th and is on view through July 31st, 2022. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego reopens in La Jolla on Saturday, April 9th with the special exhibition Nikki de Saint-Fall in the 1960s. The exhibition explores a transformative 10-year period in Saint-Fall's work when she embarked on two of her most significant series, The Tears, or Shooting Paintings, and the exuberant sculptures of women she called Nanas. Nikki de Saint-Fall in the 1960s is co-curated and co-organized by Jill Dawsey, Senior Curator, Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, and Michelle White, Senior Curator, the Menil Collection Houston. The Scene Changes, sculpture from the collection of Sheldon Museum of Art, presents a broad range of artistic approaches to sculpture, from exploration of the physical potential of material and form to use of the medium's capacity to convey concepts and narratives. The exhibition opens with sculpture deeply rooted in modernism, seminal works by Louise Bourgeois, Alexander Calder, and Isamu Noguchi, each a historical linchpin of the medium's evolution in the 1950s. Moving forward in time and practice, a second selection of works highlights modernism's concern with the distillation of primary form and pure materiality, as seen in works by Anne Truitt and John McCracken. To these, the museum adds simplified forms imbued with implicit narratives, works by Martin Purrier and Ursula von Reidingsvart. The exhibition follows sculpture's progression into a medium that examines contemporary issues and tells complex stories, with works by Leonardo Drew, Nicholas Gallinin, and Amanda Ross Ho. The Scene Changes is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from February 2nd through July 2nd, 2022. Welcome back. Next up, Edith Devaney joins me to discuss Milton Avery, a survey of the artist's career now at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford. This conversation was taped when the show debuted at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth earlier this year. Milton Avery is in Hartford through June 5th. The exhibition features about 70 paintings that Avery made between the 1910s and the mid-1960s and emphasizes Avery's interest in color. Avery was co-organized by the Royal Academy London, the Wadsworth, and the Modern. The catalog was published by the Royal Academy. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $45. Edith Devaney, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. In your essay on Milton Avery in the exhibition catalog, you start in what I, I thought was an interesting place. And you start with Hans Hoffmann, who was, of course, a German emigre to the United States. And with Hoffmann celebrating Avery as a great colorist. Why is contextualing Avery's work within Hoffmann's framing and understanding of it a useful way for our considering of Avery's achievement. Hoffman kind of occupies a very interesting position because he was considered to be one of the abstract expressionist painters, one of the, the first generation. 
but he also had this European connection. So of course he was German. He had he had taught. He had set up a teaching school in Germany. He had mixed in German artistic society. So he knew a lot of the very significant European modernist painters. He'd spent time in France. And when he came over to America, he set up his own school. So he was a huge influence and he was also bringing considerable knowledge of European painting. So for him to have singled out an artist who wasn't his student, like Lee Krasner was his student, and through Lee Krasner he got to know Pollock, of course, to single out someone like Avery, who was a very American artist, but to recognize that he was doing something enormously significant. And when I say that, it's not just enormously significant within America, but it was, it's, you know, it's that comparison to Europe as well. And because he had such authority because of this particular position within the artist community in America at the time, it would have really resonated for him to have said what he said. One of the reasons I think Hoffman's framing is important and interesting is that Avery straddles, as you note in the catalog, straddles American Impressionism, which is, must be said, not the, not the best of American art, and Abstract Expressionism. How has that in-betweenism impacted how we've considered Avery? And I guess by we, I mean not just Americans, but kind of the field as a whole. It is that difficulty of, you know, not only was he slightly seen as someone adrift at the time, that's still the case because we have this horrible habit of wanting to categorize artists, almost tidy up these artistic movements. And it's such a, it always strikes me as such a random thing because, you know, particularly when you think of abstract expressionism and and how they as a group didn't see themselves as a cohesive artistic group. They may have been a socially supportive group, but that's an entirely different thing. And there was one stage that de Kooning said, you know, it would be a disaster to name ourselves, but they were named nonetheless. And that's not the way we perceive them. And, you know, the American Impressionists were a category of their own. And there was Avery, who was who's floating somewhere in the middle. Now, it's a kind of interesting question as to whether an artist if it, it kind of categorizes himself by throwing in their lot with another group of like-minded people or whether it's, it's something that, that's rather imposed upon them, like abstract expressionism. But occupying that middle ground, I think, has been a consistent issue in how Avery is perceived and how he's remembered and whether he's remembered. You know, we don't we don't forget artists who are, are very much part of a movement. And I'm kind of thinking of, you know, the top five abstract expressionist painters. You know, we we always think of them as being part of that. And somehow it, it keeps them in our heads and maintains this consistent relevance. But, you know, Avery was a very singular character, and I think that he, throughout his life, was very resistant to joining any group or any club or any affiliation, and instead very much plowed his own furrow. Now, I I guess most of the abstract expressionist painters, if you ask them a question about their, their artistic independence, they would claim to be totally independent. And maybe that's maybe that's true. But but Avery's influences were were vast. And each one contributed a small amount rather than any one influence really determining his future. I think the show demonstrates everything you just said. It starts with Avery, at least chronologically, it starts with Avery making American Impressionism. And it closes with Avery engaging with Abex painters, Gottlieb and, and Rothko especially. 
So if we look at those or, or, or think about those early impressionistic, if you will, paintings that Avery is making kind of in the 19 teens, you know, during and at the end of, say, World War One. What does he take from those pictures that he carries into his more mature work in the 20s and 30s, late 20s and 30s? I think I think he took very important lessons from that that he did adhere to. And what was very important for him is painting directly from the motif, is being outdoors looking at the scene. He was painting in a small scale, as many of the Impressionists did, and capturing the scene. So it was that that sense of the verisimilitude of what he was depicting was of enormous importance to him. So, you know, I always get the impression that Avery felt that he was, it was almost a moral issue to depict what was in front of you and not to invent anything. And and I think that was a lesson that he learned from the Impressionists. And you know, when you look at those early paintings by Avery, which had been so little seen, I mean, those the, the pictures that we're showing in the exhibition, those early works from the, the teens, as you say, it's the first time anyone has seen them. But I think they tell such an interesting story about his beginning. And you also see in them what his particular preoccupations were in capturing the landscape. He was very interested in the composition of the work and getting that framing of the landscape in a particular way. And he was already adept at understanding devices. If you have the tree ending at one end and the river down below, you you know, just understanding how compositions work, but also how to how to make light work. You could see that he was really engaged in trying to trying to develop the effect of lights in those work. And he used impasto paint where he smoothed each of the little elements that he applied with a palette knife so that you had this very polished surface so that put together, you have this surface that's able to give a kind of really variegated light so that light b- bounces off it. And although he changed his painting method, considerably by the end of, you know, when we get to the the point of the 40s and 50s and his paint was much thinner, he was still really concerned in how to develop the effects of light, but was doing it in a completely different way. There are a couple paintings that show Avery kind of zooming ahead, zooming through European art history. There's Setting Sun from 1918, which is kind of a a Rousseau, Theodore, Theodore Rousseau engagement with landscape and then if we consider moody landscape from 1930, which is super Vuillardian, super Bernardian, it's a terrific painting where it's a, it's a scene right out of Bernard or Vuillard, but isn't painted like they paint, isn't, you know, the paint isn't handled or treated the way they paint. You know, what, what in this, this moment as the 1920s are going on and as we get into 1930, what do we see Avery doing and embracing when it comes to European modernism? I think he's developing an understanding of European modernism. You know, he's not yet at the point. It's not until 25, I think, that he goes to New York and spends time in galleries. He's looking at the subject in a slightly different way. He's understanding that all of these different influences can come to bear in his work. I think that his particular consideration, you know, when you think of the the, the 20s and going into the 30s and how... It was it was cubism and surrealism that really kind of caught a foothold in America that then led to abstract expressionism, because without those two movements, abstract expressionism wouldn't have developed in the way it did. But Avery had no instinct for that. He was much more interested in 
the French Impressionist painters and Fauvism. And I think that that's that's something that becomes very evident in those works of the of the mid late twenties. And he's he's finding his own style as well. I think by that stage he's also kind of he has dropped the influence of of artists like Lawson and Twatchman, and he is he's really discovering the possibilities of his own style. And what's fascinating is the rapidity in which he moves through developments of that style until he gets to the 30s where you feel as if there's this element of, of a kind of security. Well, speaking of his own direction, is there a moment or a painting or a couple of paintings where you think he, he fully arrives into his own maturity, into what an Avery will be? Yeah, I mean, one of the things he does, and, and I find it fascinating, is that he there's a couple of points in the exhibition and a couple of paintings that we've included where he almost gets ahead of himself. And one of the ones I was, I'm so fascinated by is Rolling Hills from the 1930s. There's not an exact date on it, but it's, it's circa 1930s. And it's as if he is anticipating how he's going to be painting 30 years later. I find that really an extraordinary work. The palette is still much darker. The detail is, is more present than in some of the later works. You know, that is a real example of him showing where he, he's going to go and possibly not even realizing it himself. Another interesting comparison I find is when he's in New York and he's trying to look for subject matter which feels more comfortable to him, you know, really the natural world and the nearest he could get when he wasn't in his summer vacations was Coney Island. And there's two paintings done in the same year. One of them is, is called Coney Island and the other one is called Seaside. And they're incredibly different. So you can you get that sense that he's really working things out. He's experimenting like mad. Coney Island is is full of people. And those devices that we understand from Western perspective with the, the bodies lying in the sand, which are foreshortened, which give that sense of depth and then the, the kind of the throng of people behind them. That's kind of such a complicated composition, but fascinating. It feels both modern and traditional at the same time, but really it evokes this sense of place. And yet Seaside is so stylized. And you see already he's kind of breaking down the canvas into into bands of background, which is is, is quite prescient as to what happened later, not just with his own work, with, but with the development of abstract expressionism. And then has these highly stylized figures dotted around the beach. I think there are moments, there's a few moments like that in the exhibition, which I hope people will be as fascinated by as I am. So Seaside and Coney Island are both paintings from 1931. Coney Island seems like a look at America and American painting, specifically George Bellows, who was famously uneven. And Seaside, the second painting about which you talked, it feels like Avery discovering and beginning to reckon with Matisse. Matisse from about 1908, 1909 on. And then Matisse stays of primary importance to Avery for, I don't know, 15 years or so. What do we know about how Avery found Matisse and what do you see Avery is taking from Matisse? 
it's interesting what he takes from Matisse. And it's it's interesting that he also never kind of acknowledged Matisse's influence on him. And, and, and I find that interesting. It's not just that I, I don't think that any artist really wants to ever claim that, you know, there was a major influence. Although, you know, Picasso talked about, you know, good artist copy. I think that his understanding of Matisse was something that developed during his time in when he arrived, first arrived in New York. And by the time he was taken on by the Pierre Rosenberg Gallery in the 1940s, he was seeing Matisse not just in exhibitions at MoMA, but he actually was able to go through the racks in the Rosenberg Gallery and, and, and kind of, you know, physically encounter them and measure up his own work against them. And I think that was the point at which his understanding of Matisse became more acute. So yes, you know, Seaside is an example of him beginning to kind of reckon with Matisse and 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 think about how elements of of Matisse's way of approaching art could be developed within his own work. But it becomes a much more sophisticated dialogue by the time we get to the 1940s. And I think that's to do with accessibility. And when he gets into the kind of what we call the breakthrough period, which is the 1944-45, where he's really kind of just hit this confidence where so many of the experimentation that he'd been doing the previous decade really kind of comes together in this kind of perfect balance to do with the colour and form. I think Matisse's presence is very clear. But at the same time, although that that is true and it is clear, there's other influence that have also brought been brought to bear in his work. A good example of that is Still Life with Skull from 1946. There there are plenty of Matisse nods in the picture, but there are plenty of other artists he's looking at too. I mean, most of all Cezanne and Brock. The orange comes right out of Brock. Yeah. And the, the subject matter is, is, is very Cezanne and also the view, the way that he presents the work on the surface is very Cezanne-like as well. We don't know, no one really knows, and maybe the artist didn't even know himself whether all of these different influences were in there. I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't imagine that he would be painting this thinking, oh, this is very Cezanne and that, that's very Brock. I, it, it kind of doesn't work like that. These influences become absorbed and, and subsumed somehow into his own sort of artistic understanding and, and then are translated into the Avery style. It's not just European moderns that Avery is is looking at and building from. He's obviously spending a lot of time with Hartley, not just for his great <laughs> ghostly 1943 portrait of Hartley that's in Boston and which is in your show, but also in Hartley's paintings of birds. In Hartley's paintings, the, the birds are often dead and they're often against flat backgrounds. Avery does birds, but differently. How, do, how does... Avery do them and and I guess do you do you agree? Is he kind of jumping off from Hartley's interest in birds and I guess perhaps Audubon's too? Oh, I think Audubon comes into play very much as well. And yes, I think I think he is he's he's taking from both. One of the wonderful things that Avery does is place figures and animals, birds in this case, in the landscape. And he's able to I mean, birds are a separate example, but, you know, he's able to cross genres in a kind of remarkable way and have this fusion of, of you know, that there's also that very odd painting from around a similar time as Oyster Catcher, which is the hors d'oeuvre. And I just think that's such a humorous work to put a still life with a backdrop of a landscape 
it's kind of glorious and mad at the same time, but but compositionally utterly fascinating. But something like Oyster Catcher, I just think that is the most remarkable work. The background of the um, Oyster Catcher is is very static, beautifully described, very, very muted, complementary colors, but very static. But there's something very kind of physical and urgent about the Oyster Catcher. And I love the way that he spans the bird spans the canvas with the, the last leg, you know, he's he's moving. That last leg is almost at the edge of the canvas. The beak isn't far from the from the left hand side. So he's really kind of stretching across the composition. Although he really wasn't using impasto at this stage, he was thinning down his paints. He's made an exception and there's elements of impasto on the bird's wing. It, it's it's just got volume. And then when you compare Sooty turns to it. And I think that has even more influenced by Audubon. Sooty turns to me is, I mean, it's another really remarkable work because it's almost like the two birds together, very stylized, but it's almost like a piece of, of sculpture that would be would have been contemporary for Avery. So I'm kind of thinking, well, it's, it's you know, there's a colder element to that or there's a, you know, is there is there a Herbert Ferber element to that? You know, Brock again, of course, that's got a real presence. And then that wonderful patterning that sits behind it. So the detail of those birds is reduced. So you've just got that kind of single color. But unlike Oyster Catcher, he's all of the detail is in the background. So he's kind of flipped that relationship. The next or the last, I guess, really big moment of transition seems to come in 1952-53 with two paintings. One is a gouache and watercolor on paper. Pretty good sized gouache, must be said. And one is an oil painting. What are those two pictures and what is the transition they, they mark? What are the pictures that you're... Oh, sorry. Excursion on the Thames. Excursion, right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So they mark that those particular works came from his only visit to Europe. So for someone who was so in awe of European modernism to make only one visit and to do it quite late in his life was interesting. And he apparently did the sketches for that. That was another example of Avery not doing the paintings on plein air. He would he would do the drawings in the looking at the scene and then he would translate them into into oil paintings and, and more developed works on paper, the gouache, a little bit later. But he did that on a trip to the Thames, to the Tate Gallery, which is on the Thames. And apparently his energy levels were somewhat reduced by this stage. I'm giving you a bit of an anecdote here, but his energy levels were much reduced at that stage because he'd had hit the first of his heart attacks. And he had sufficient energy to either go into the museum and look at the paintings or to capture the scene. And he decided to sit in the steps and capture the scene and then painted it later, which I think tells us a lot about Avery, that much as he was interested in the work of others, his own came first. And I'm really delighted that we're able to show both in the exhibition because I think that what you get is that, again, it goes back to the lessons he learned from the American Impressionists, that faithfulness to the original scene and that the painting and the work on paper are very, very similar, that the difference is really one of scale. And in both of them, he's paring back so much of the detail. He's just kind of reducing, slightly distorting, flattening. But there's enough there to recognize exactly what it is. 
and you've got this scratched out, the far bank of the Thames, the scratched out outline of, of some of the, the built environment of the city. And the, the colours that he's, the non-associative colours, I guess they must have been non-associative colours that he describes the, the boat, are kind of a wonderful compositional device. The show closes with eight or ten pictures in which Avery is in full discourse with abstract expressionism. What does he take from Abex and integrate into his work? And, and maybe even more interestingly, what does he reject? What does he keep from what had interested him his entire career to that point? Well, he had kind of seen, because of his, his early friendship with Mark Rothko, he met Mark Rothko in 1928 when they showed together at the Opportunity Gallery. And of course, at that stage, Rothko and then later Gottlieb, who he met, and, and finally Barnett Newman. But Rothko and, and Gottlieb were painting figuratively when Avery first met them. So he really did witness the whole trajectory of a movement through those particular artists. He also witnessed Matisse's paring down of detail so that he was really at the point where his works had that abstract quality. But Avery, and again, this goes back to the American Impressionist, Avery was always painting a subject, whereas the subject of Rothko's painting was one, one of the describing the emotions. Avery was describing life. He was describing what was going on around him. And that was very important to him and he never lost it. So although the works have an appearance of being abstracted, Rothko and Gottlieb, who, who used to holiday with him at kind of painting holidays, and certainly they did in Provincetown in those last years where he had, I think it was five consecutive years where he visited, he visited Provincetown. Undoubtedly, their, their work and seeing their work would have had an impact on him. We know from his past work that he was very observant of others and was able to take elements from other people's work and put it into his own. But he was still describing the subject. And the titles are sometimes the only thing that remind us of that. You know, when you have something like Boathouse by the Sea or Black Sea or Beach Blankets, these are works that, you know, otherwise you, you, you would just assume that they're, they're abstract. But he was still describing something. And that was something that he was clearly very important to him. I think in terms of technique, his scale got bigger. So when you think of the early work, the only really big work that he did was circus. And then after that, it was not until he was in Provincetown that he he decided to work on a larger scale, which was, was very similar to the one that, you know, Rothko was working on. Edith Devaney, thanks so much. You're very welcome. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.